The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. U.S. futures are mixed after the S&P and Dow close at record highs, buoyed by strong corporate earnings and economic data, with another raft of key earnings ahead this week. More than 3 million people have now died from COVID-19. The World Health Organization warns the world is approaching a critical point with India recording more than a quarter of a million cases in just one day. Elsewhere, China and the United States pledging to cooperate on climate change after two days of high-level meetings in Shanghai ahead of President uh, Biden's Leaders' Summit this week. And Beijing says it's not aiming to dethrone the dollar on the world stage as it announced plans for the first international test of the digital yuan. This as Bitcoin remains volatile, having aggressive falls over the weekend. Oxford University launches a human challenge trial deliberately reinfecting previous COVID patients with the virus to assess future risks. This will allow us to understand more about how the immune response protects against this virus. It will allow us to therefore understand who is protected based on their immune response. And it will allow us to develop better vaccines. Just back from my week in Barbados. Sorry, no, farming, farming the Malvins these days. Uh, and, and I'm confused, Jeffrey. I've come back, all, my head's all befuddled, and thank God I've got you to steer me through. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, British oh. countryside, great yes. for the lungs as well, great Lovely. for the walking, for the kids and that as yep. well. But I have come back oh. utterly bemused by markets and what is going on. Yes. So I'm going to ask you a question in a few months' time. Moments time a few, and that a few is, months is better. A few months. I'll ask you the same question in a few <laughs> right. months, because I reckon it Go might on. be the same story. So what I'm going to do now is just going to go through a few issues that Mm. I have. (laughs) It's like a big therapy session. Um, But look, for instance, US futures. Well, let's have a quick look at where they're trading at the moment. Pretty nondescript in many ways in terms of the fact that the uh, implied open for the S&P down 6.5, the Dow around about 90 points easy, a little bit of form to the upside uh, for the Nasdaq. But the markets on Friday, calm, moving in an orderly direction to the north as well. Great increases in the market moves, I guess, building on the rally. If you're looking at new records left, right and centre, new records on the close on the Dow on Friday, uh, up 1.2% for the week. The S&P up 1.4% for the week. The Nasdaq, just a little bit of a laggard compared to those indices, down 0.9% of 1% for the week and hence not hitting that record there as well. Um, Producers very excited about the Dow transports. We've talked about their predictive powers in the past as well. Three-month move up 15%. Actually did very little for the week, but is... 130% higher than our 52-week low. Now, of course, exaggerated moves because the height of the pandemic just over a year ago as well. Height of, sorry, beg pardon, the, the market concern about the pandemic. And that's a very important point. Because Jeff's headline there was about concerns about India and other really key economies uh, and the um, lack of vaccinations and the increase in infections and unfortunately mortalities as well. But the market low was well over a year ago now. Important point. Lumber. I mean, look, 
Again, this is a bit of the nothing to see here, isn't it? This is just transitionary. Are you sure lumber is up? Well, what do you think it did last week? Oh, you can see, can't you? No, you can't see. Last week, it did 15%. Three-month moves is up 62%. Year-to-date is up 48%. Nothing to see here. Uh, and let's have a look at some of the data as well as we look at the treasuries as well. And actually, this is the point. So what have we got? Since I've been gone, we've had numbers of 916,000 on the jobless figures a week or so ago uh, on the payroll. That is blew out the estimates. And I know Karen and Jeff talked a lot about that because uh, I was watching from my Morven farm on Monday. No, it wasn't really. Uh, but uh, the, the Bureau of Labour Statistics, the producer prices, much bigger figure we saw uh, than expected. Uh, double estimates, actually. Market recording huge services spending. Jobless claims, the lowest since the pandemic. Retail sales, the biggest gain in 10 months as well. CPI, and I know it's not caught because it doesn't matter if it's fuel and food, does it? Up 2.6%, uh, one of the biggest figures year on year as well. Uh, huge increases across the board in the US data. So very, very solid. So this is what I was really confused about, Jeffrey. And this is where you come back in. Because my confusion is about this. Yeah. 1.57. When I left, I'm pretty sure it was 1.66 and a bit of change as well. So we've had masses of great data. We've got ebullience in the markets. We've got 52-week highs left right and center. We've got the US vaccination rates. And do you know what? Let's give credit to the Trump administration for putting the foundation in place for the Biden administration to also really push on. United States has got a fantastic vaccination record now. You've got, what is it, 131 million Americans have had at least one dose. Uh, and I know the European vaccine story is also picking up. So that's a, a nod there as well. So you've got the 10-year yield slipping despite all that excellent data, despite all those excellent moves if you're long the market on the upside. Uh, and then, uh, well, the dollar crosses, surely, surely the dollar has been rallying for the week and a bit since I was, uh, actually, no, no. The dollar index is actually falling the last two weeks. It's down 0.7 of a percent last week. Huh? So, Jeffrey, I was there watching right. the cows and the sheep and the horses on this beautiful Malvern farm that I was on. A real nod to what a brilliant <laughs> part of the United Kingdom that is as well. Yes. Far better than going to Barbados, I'm sure, in many ways, unless yes. there's cricket in Barbados, which that's a different story. Yes. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the dollar's <clears throat> plummeting, a bit of extreme, but falling yes. fairly. The 10-year yes. yield is doing nada. So I can only think that something else has changed. And oh. Maybe it's because the Fed doesn't look at the data in the same way anymore. Uh, well, you can make that assumption, I guess. I mean, I, they, they've said of, it. They're reactive rather than proactive now. Part of the problem, though, is is just figuring out which part of the jigsaw puzzle actually matters as we come into this trading week here, because we, we did this story last week while you were away, oh, because right. we had, the, <laughs> we obviously had the, well, I uh, get the reception, could I? We obviously had the retail sales numbers, which were very strong, uh, as expected, on the back of uh, the stimulus checks being sent out. We had a strong initial jobless claims number, which was a blowout compared to the expectation. And on that day, what did we see happen? That was the huge move away from the one spot seven. Uh, mark that we'd hit on the 10-year Treasury all the way down to one spot five or thereabouts. And we were scratching our heads about it. And we talked a little bit about the market rumour that J Japan was in there heavily buying Treasuries. And that was the reason why we'd seen the yields come down. And then there was some short covering going on and so on and so forth, which all sounds great as you desperately try to post-fact rationalise the price movement. But I think the reality is, as you look around all sorts of uh, different themes and trends at the moment. Uh, we've gone back to chasing growth. 
Uh, Europe finally managed to outperform last week. I don't know if you saw what the Dow and the F, uh, FTSE did, but yes, we I were did. back through 7,000. We that managed was to put 1. on 1.9% last week. 1.48 on the DAX, 1.5 on the FTSE, better than the 1% we saw for the S&P and the Nasdaq. So there's a bit of rotation and churning going on. We keep seeing headlines that say oil is slipping back, but we're still. a barrel plus at this point. Cryptocurrencies had an amazing week on the back of the Coinbase listing. But here we are Monday morning talking about a 20% pullback for Bitcoin. Mm. So there's a lot of moving parts in the market at the moment. I think the challenge for our audience is actually to try and look through the noise in the price movements to try and find a trend. But you know there's a real problem out there. And again, <laughs> another one. Yeah, and I was thinking about this on my Malvern farm. Did I Go mention that? Um, <laughs> but 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 the, but the fact is, there's a whole. I hate to say it because, of course, every job lost is mm. a sad job, and every job mm. created is a good job in many ways as well. Unless yeah. you're not being paid properly as an employee uh, because of some new gig economy. But that's another story. Mm. Uh, but 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 there's no job for well, a lot of our guests anymore. No need for economic forecasters. No need for forward-looking thinkers on the economics at all anymore because the data is now, it's all about actual outcomes from the Fed rather than forecasts to the data. And that is my point as well. And I think that's actually almost like the final throw of the dice verbally uh, from these central banks. It's like, actually, we don't care what your forecasts are anymore. We're going to go on the actual data. Well, if you don't care about the various forecasts out there anymore and you're only going to look at the actual outcome of the data, that means you're basically not doing your crystal ballology anymore, doesn't it? You're not doing your forecasting. You're not rolling your models about the scenarios. This is about the actual data happening rather than what we think is going to happen in the future. But, of course, nobody believes it, do they? Let's face it. I mean, what, what, what they've said is we are going to be... Treasury market believes it? I'm not sure it does. Uh, we're, we're going to be so far behind the curve that we can't even see the curve anymore. And that's, that's the suggestion. And we, we talked a, a little bit, a bit about this last week because... Mm. Sounds like you the, talked about everything. I was well, I'm, to a, I'm afraid. I'm afraid you were away on a very important well, I was, week. I wasn't away. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the messaging Just from the... you can't persuade your wife to go glamping. Well, that that is true. That is true. Um, yeah, let's not dwell on that one. But the point the, the point She's is not this. Watching yet. The po- the point is this that how many times can Jay Powell repackage the same message? And the same message is it's going to be very easy monetary conditions for a very long time to come. The trouble is, you and I have sat around this desk a very long time and we know that central banks ultimately have to start thinking about things like tapering and they have to start thinking about uh, adjusting the monetary policy messages if the economy starts to run a little hotter. The, the problem at the moment is, as you know, that even as we see data around um, energy and around food prices that suggests there are some nascent inflationary pressures, that underlying question of when we're going to get wage growth is not being answered at this point. And every time we get one of these inflation prints, even as we get the base effect, which suggests that the number is quite spiky, the underlying is always relatively mild because because there's no serious evidence of wage growth. Did you mention Jeremy Grantham last week? I'm not sure we did. Ha! OK, we'll do that later <laughs> on. There you go. There's something they didn't talk about. Right, let's move Got on. It. Anyway, lovely to be back and lovely yeah. to see you. Good, and, good. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the British uh, staycation as well. A lot of people who are probably going to have one for the first time ever in their lives this year, I would imagine.
Yeah, well, you know I'm a great fan of the great British countryside like yourself. Mm. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, total global, de- global deaths from COVID-19 have surpassed 3 million people, led by more than 566,000 in the United States. The World Health Organization has warned the crisis is reaching a critical point as case rates threaten to return to record highs. Global consumers have saved an extra $5.4 trillion since the onset of the pandemic, according to Moody's estimates. The ratings agency predicts the stockpile, coupled with pent-up demand, will help fuel a sharp rise in spending as countries begin to allow businesses to reopen. The Federal Reserve Governor, Christopher Waller, told CNBC the U.S. economy will see sharp growth thanks to its widespread vaccine rollout and argued that any rise in inflation would be short-lived. You just can't look at the growth rate. you got to look at the levels where you're at. We know this stimulus is going to have some impact, but once the stimulus checks are spent, they're gone. Once the pent-up savings is spent, it's gone. There's no further demand, excess demand coming out of those things. We also know the bottlenecks that are currently there are going to go away. Firms are going to get capacity up and running again. So whatever temporary surge in inflation we see right now is not going to last. Christopher Waller, there again, you see the message is this is only an interim spike in inflationary pressure. It's all going to start to ease off going forward. We need a chief economist to Help us out on this one. Holger Schmieding joins us uh, from Berenberg. Uh, good to see you, Holger. We'll, we'll just nail your colours to the mast here. Are you um, a believer in the trans- transitory inflation message at the moment? Yes and no. Sorry for the economist's answer. What we are seeing now is indeed a transitory spike in inflation on both sides of the Atlantic. That will be gone in a year's time. Having said that, longer term, there are clear forces that will put inflation up on trend. The four decades of declining inflation are over. Demographics are shifting towards labor shortages that will show up in more inflation pressure in the long run. And on top of that, the disinflationary impact of China is history. So indeed, we are facing a gradual uptrend in underlying inflation and central banks will eventually have to react to that. And in your um, estimation, is that why we've now seen an easing back on the uh, US uh, 10-year Treasury uh, yield at this stage? Uh, Is the market starting to become convinced about the overall messaging from the Fed about transitory inflation trends? Well, yes, central banks are pretty powerful. Don't fight the Fed. Even if you believe, like we do, that inflation will eventually rise somewhat gradually, but will rise, we also think that the Fed will, for the time being, want to avoid any taper tantrum. For now, they want to support the economy as much as they can. So for now, we should act on the knowledge, the likelihood, that inflation will first drop again after the transitory spike before longer term, it indeed returns to more normal, less depressed levels. The central banks are very much pushing us towards this, that for now, and emphasis on now, inflation won't be a problem that will get the central banks into early stimulus removed. 
Look, Holger, um, really good morning to you, by the way. Um, look, the co-founder of Boston, this is in the FT, the co-founder of Boston-based fund manager GMO, this is Jeremy Grantham, who's called a bear of market once or twice in his life as well, featuring, uh, says this market, features extreme overvaluation, explosive price increases, frenzied issuance, hysterically speculative investor behaviour. I believe this event will be recorded as one of the greatest bubbles in financial history, right alongside the South Sea bubble, 1929 and 2000. That is Jeremy Grantham talking. Is he right or wrong? I think he is wrong on that one. Of course, segments of the markets are a bit bubbly and you can point to some tech segments perhaps, but overall, especially on a global scale, if you move away from some specific US companies, I would not say that relative to earnings prospects that we are really in bubble territory. Um, can those speculative areas of the market drag us all down? And I'll use as a reference point something completely different here. You, I and Jeffrey and, and everyone else got involved in a huge heated chat, I'm sure, back in 2009 uh, about Cyprus and queues outside ATMs. And Cyprus, with all due respect to my, my Cypriot friends, and I've been to the country a few times, I love it, both sides of the border and everything. The, the fact of the matter is, it's incy-wincy-teeny and no one really cares about it in the global economy. But we did then because we were worried it was the straw on top of the bale of hay on the camel's back. Why shouldn't we worried about these pockets of extreme speculation? Well, we should always be worried about such pockets, but the big difference to some extent, well, well, the big point now is that central banks want this recovery to roar for a while. And they know a lot about what to do um, be against financial tendons if they arise. As we learned uh, 13 months ago, when in March last year, they prevented the serious COVID crisis. And that really, really is a bad one. But they prevented that from turning into a financial crisis. So for now, I think don't fight the central banks. The central banks would prevent any significant financial turmoil. Of course, Corrections in the markets do happen. It's not going to be a smooth ride. And at some point in time, when central banks will start to remove their stimulus or more precisely start to seriously talk about that, there will likely be a correction. But I would not call the current levels above it. Holger, if we look at the performance of European equity markets, perhaps as a, an indicator of a shift in sentiment over vaccination programmes, interesting that we've got the FTSE back through 7,000, perhaps reflecting the strong programme we've seen in the UK. What does the DAX at record highs tell us about the progress of vaccination programmes in Germany and across the Eurozone? Well, vaccination in Europe is picking up. That is good news. The European Union is the biggest exporter of vaccines. It has delivered most of the vaccines that are being used in the UK. And now the pace of domestic vaccination is improving, although that is, of course, good for sentiment. Although I would say that to some extent, especially the German index, also reflects global prospects because many of the continental European companies are as much a play on the global economy, we are export-oriented, as they are a play on uh, the domestic outlook, which is pretty good in the sense that Following the UK, which is likely accelerating now, one or two months later, the Eurozone economy will likely do this. Yeah. 
Now, Holger, seeing as you're in one of uh, Jeff and I's favourite cities in Europe, we should ask you about Berlin politics as well. Uh, and I was going to ask you, is there, but I'm going to ask you about the rather than is there, because I believe there is a crisis of European leadership, both in the Commission and in Berlin as well. How extreme is this? Or you're shaking your head. Maybe you disagree with me. Maybe there isn't a crisis. Well, I find crisis a pretty big word for it. Yes, we have an election in this country, and it is unclear who the two major parties will send into the race. We will likely learn a lot about that today. The Greens will announce their candidates. The Conservatives may announce their candidates, their candidate soon. And in a way, this is normal. When an old leader goes and Angela Merkel will not run again, there is a bit of a vacuum, and it's right. We see some of the impact of that to some extent on the European level and to a more significant extent indeed on the German level, where this current fight between the federal level and the federal states about um, the extent of lockdowns probably would not have arisen as much as it has if it hadn't been for, well, Merkel is no longer as powerful as she used to be. We shall watch that space. A huge event later on in the year as well, of course, for Germany and the whole of Europe. Holger, nice to see you, sir. Holger Schmieding, the chief economist over at Berenberg. Germany's Green Party is set to choose a candidate for Chancellor for the first time in its 41-year history later today with co-leaders Robert Habeck or Annalena Baerbock expected to receive the nomination. The Greens sit in second place in opinion polls five months before national elections that will find a successor to longtime Chancellor Angela Merkel. Later on this morning, Annette will be speaking with a member of the Bundestag for the Greens and former party leader Jürgen Trittin. That's coming up at 11.15 Central European time. OK, also coming up on this show, Trip.com debuts its secondary listing in Hong Kong. We'll bring you the latest moves and a first on interview with the group's executive chair after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Trip.com shares have debuted in their secondary listing in Hong Kong. Executive chair of the Chinese headquartered firm James Liang told CNBC in a first on interview the listing is not the result of geopolitical concerns in the United States. Well, Emily has more on the story for us. Shares in Trip.com jumped nearly 5% on its debut in Hong Kong before pairing some of those gains. The online travel platform raised $1.1 billion in its secondary listing. One Nasdaq Trip share equals one Hong Kong listed share. The company's executive chairman, James Liang, told CNBC that the Hong Kong listing was not intended to be a hedge against a potential delisting from the U.S. market, but brings the company closer to its Asian investors. The funds raised will be used for technology and to enhance its service offering. This comes 
as the 17-year-old company is benefiting from a rebound in travel as COVID subsides. With the May Day Labor Day holiday approaching, Liang says the company is seeing record volumes in transactions and higher margins. The Shanghai-based company is backed by Baidu with an 11.5% stake and like its biggest shareholder joins a string of Chinese tech companies making a homecoming in the Hong Kong market. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you. Ant Group has denied a Reuters report that it's exploring ways for its founder Jack Ma to exit the business. The Chinese fintech company said on Twitter, quote, the entire story is untrue and baseless, adding that Ma's stake in the business has never been discussed. Well, the outspoken billionaire directly owns about 10 percent in Ant Group and controls a majority of it through various investment vehicles. According to Reuters, regulators have indicated to the company that its IPO plans could be revived if Ma were to divest his stake to Beijing-approved investors. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.